From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The first head of the Pentagon's Joint Artificial Intelligence Center is retiring. Air Force Lieutenant General Jack Shanahan will leave his post and the Air Force this summer. FedScoop reports Shanahan's Air Force career spans more than 35 years. A key milestone in the federal data strategy is complete. Federal Chief Information Officer Suzette Kent says Friday's first meeting of the Chief Data Officers Council laid out roles and responsibilities and mission goals of the council. Federal Times reports the federal data strategy calls for the council to meet, quote, regularly. Phase two of the General Services Administration's mass modification of schedules is underway. GSA Administrator Emily Murphy says the consolidation is, quote, right on track. FCW reports the new head of the Federal Acquisition Service, Julie Dunn, says agencies shouldn't see any disruption during the modification. More on this later in the program. The final version of the Cybersecurity Maturity Model certification is on the street. Every contract with the Defense Department will need to move to the new system over the next six years. Gordon Bitko is Senior Vice President of Policy at the Public Sector at ITI. He's former Chief Information Officer of the FBI. Gordon, welcome. It's great to have you here. Francis, thank you for having me on today. What's your takeaway from what we see now about CMMC? Yeah, that's a really great question, Francis. CMMC is a really important program for cybersecurity for the country. And looking at it both from my current seat representing the technology industry mm -hmm. and from having been in a role at the FBI where I had lots of awareness of a lot of the cybersecurity challenges out there, getting cybersecurity right for the defense industrial base is critical for us. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt about that. This first version, which has now come out officially, has been released, version 1.0, is a significant step. It contains a lot of detail and how the cybersecurity controls that are spelled out in the model should be implemented. That's really important for the accreditors, who, who, and the accreditation process still needs to be stood up, mm -hmm. but this is necessary for them to do that. And it's also useful guidance for companies who need to start preparing now in order to figure out what work they need to do in order to be able to be accredited. In your experience talking to these companies when you were still in government and now looking at working with them on the outside, what do you, what's your sense of what the biggest gap is between where companies are today and where they need to get both to fulfill the letter of CMMC and the spirit of it? I think that there's uh, that the, the, that answer bifurcates. There mm. are sophisticated, mature companies out there. A lot of the companies that ITI works with directly have invested a lot in cybersecurity over the years, and they are very far down the road. And the bigger challenge for them is not CMMC itself, but understanding what's the gap between what they do today and other certification programs like FedRAMP, for example, or the NIST standards that they already comply with, and what's going to be expected for them out of CMMC, and can we work with DOD to find smart ways to integrate those things so we're not making them repeat a lot of the same work. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the challenge for them. For smaller companies who have not really invested as much in cybersecurity, who are two, three, four, five layers deep in the industrial base, this is maybe a, a bigger challenge where they're going to have to go through and understand what's going to be required and expected of them. And, and while they should be doing this if contract requirements have flowed down properly, the reality is there hasn't been a process in place to help with that in the past. And this is going to hopefully get them up that road. But, but it's going to be a new challenge for a lot of them. And I wonder, too, what your take is on how far down this has gone and, and how much change this will actually cause and how much of it will just be we're making sure that everybody's doing the right thing. 
that is an open question right mm -hmm. now, Francis. At the again, at the high level, if if you are a, a vendor providing FedRAMP services, you're doing actually more than CMMC requires because FedRAMP requires continuous monitoring. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a real significant step forward in cybersecurity. That's a great best practice that we should be looking to work with DoD in future versions of CMMC to even include that as well. If you are that further step down, three, four, five steps down, it's an open question for you now. Can you leverage some of those processes that are already made available through FedRAMP approved services? Do you have to figure that all out for yourself? Mm -hmm. there, there are lots of people asking those questions now. You, uh, when this came out on Friday, you said, uh, we look forward to reviewing this later, latest iteration of CMMC, working with DOD to incorporate information technology industry input and implement a structurally sound and holistic approach to improving industrial-based cyber and supply chain security. What do you think that right dialogue looks, right, looks like as, on an ongoing basis? You said this is iteration 1.0, correctly. Yep. That means, it implies to me at least, there'll be a 2.0 and a 3.0 and so on. Well, I think the very nature of cybersecurity requires there to be continuous improvements. I'm not sure if the right mindset is 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, or okay. figuring out best practices and continuing to share those across all the players in both the public and the private sector, but some future versions. And, and, and I think that industry looks forward to working with DOD to figure out exactly how to do that. It's imperative. I know in the structure of, of the accreditation body, They've got there notionally the engagement between industry and, and the accreditors, and we'll have to continue to build on that and see how that works. There are good practices in other areas like FedRAMP that have, it, it, it took many years to work some of that stuff out, to be honest. And one of the challenges I think will be leveraging some of those practices and lessons learned in these other accreditation regimes and applying them to CMMC quickly. If it takes five, six, seven years like it's taken in some of these other programs, then that, that's gonna be a real challenge mm -hmm. for everybody. And that's where, that's where I wanted to go next. The timeline here is six years. Mm -hmm. strikes me that this is a severe challenge. We were talking before we went on the air about what the threat landscape looks like. That's right. Six years seems like a long time in this area. So I, I think that there's a couple of different pieces to that. One is it's great to have guidance out there and companies who are interested in doing work with DOD or somewhere in the DOD or government supply chain, honestly, should be looking to, the, to this as guidance now today and starting to do the things if they're not that are necessary to get them prepared. Mm -hmm. Separately, there are DOD contracting requirements that dictate some of this. They're not gonna go back retroactively to old contracts. They're gonna look to go point forward, and that, that drives some of the five-year timeline. But another part of what drives it is just the number of companies that we're talking about and the practical realities of it's gonna take some time to stand up the accreditation process, to train all the people who need to do that work, to share all their best practices and lessons learned, and then start going out to all these companies. Mm -hmm. We have less than a minute left, Gordon. Let's role play for a moment. I'm gonna make you tie Scheiber for a moment. You're running the board now. Yep. What do you consider success a year from now, two years from now, five years from now? I think success uh, a year from now is a really clear process that everybody understands and th that some of the key questions that are still being asked today have been answered. How is information flow going to work? If a decision is made that a prime is at a CMMC level three or four, who and how is the decision made that subcontractors are at level one, two, three, four, and how is risk balanced around those things appropriately? So I think that's, those questions have to be answered quickly for it to be successful. Further out, I think we have a more modern, sophisticated cybersecurity program that, like I said, draws on best practices from the IT industry, leverages things like continuous monitoring and takes advantage of all that and shares those things across the entirety of the industrial base in ways that 
small, medium, and large contractors can all take advantage of it rather than having to figure it out for themselves. Gordon, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you. Francis, thank you for having me. Up next, keeping track of veterans after the VA cares for them. Straight ahead on Government Matters, getting better health outcomes through data. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The Department of Veterans Affairs struggles to keep track of what happens to veterans after they receive care. The Government Accountability Office finds the VA needs to improve the way it studies health outcomes. Elizabeth Curta is Director of Education, Workforce and Income Security Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Elizabeth, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You looked at the reevaluation process inside VA, that term used a number of times in your work. Tell me what you mean by what's the definition of the reevaluation process? Well, sure. Let me just back up a little bit and, and tell you about the population we're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, when a veteran returns from their military service with a, um, a disabling condition, they are entitled to compensation um, for that service-connected disability. And they're also entitled to access to health care mm -hmm. and are given certain levels of priority for that health care. So understanding whether that, um, that veteran still has a di disabling condition, if it has gotten better, if it has gotten worse, is very important mm -hmm. in terms of the compensation they receive, their access to health care. Um, a reevaluation is basically the process that VA uses to periodically check in with veterans to see do they still have this disabling condition, and they might ask for a medical exam, and um, if they're getting better, they might lower their rating. Um, for disability, it's on a, a scale of zero to 100%. Mm -hmm. If they're getting worse, they may raise their um, rating or they might stay the same. Mm -hmm. So you write in uh, this work that data reside about tracking this population in different VA systems and use different identifiers with medi uh, for medical conditions. What's the cause of that? Is it, is it an IT problem? Is it an information management problem? Is it something at the healthcare provider level? Maybe some combination or something else? Um, it's probably more at a policy level. Mm. Um, there's basically two different um, silos in VA. Um, there's the, the group that deals with veterans disability compensation, the Veterans Benefit Administration, mm -hmm. and the group that deals with their health care, the Veterans Health Administration. And each has its own um, set of codes for how to characterize a medical condition that a disabled veteran may be experiencing. Mm -hmm. And so when you have different codes, it's difficult to match up the disability information with the healthcare information. You write, VA doesn't glean information from the results of reevaluations to help manage its disability compensation program. What seems to be the holdup there? Well, the problem um, with that is that um, v VBA collects a lot of data mm -hmm. when it does reevaluations about conditions that are getting worse, conditions that are getting better. Um, but it doesn't track that information um, either in terms of trends as to you know what what is changing over time, what is the frequency of certain conditions, and, um, and it also doesn't track the outcomes of its reevaluation. So after having gone through this process, which um, ratings actually changed as a result, mm -hmm. and when you don't have that use that information, um, you can't inform policy or resource allocation. So for example, where should VA be putting its resources in terms of which conditions are most likely to change as a result of a reevaluation? Mm -hmm. It strikes me that there, this is a similar problem to what other agencies see, especially where there are kind of silos of data all around them, where it's 
everybody doesn't see everything that everybody else has. Is, am I on the right track? Exactly. Um, it, at VA, there are different actual warehouses yeah. that the data reside in that don't talk to each other. Um, so not only do they not have ability to sort of match on medical conditions, um, but they, don't, they can't easily, researchers can't easily access the data in the different systems. And they don't have these sort of readily available um, agreements between different components of VA um, as to how that data can be used in a way that um, can meet researchers' needs but also protect the privacy of veterans. Another issue here that you write about is training. And you write, VA recently updated its procedures manual to specify which staff can determine whether a veteran's condition should be reevaluated. But there are some challenges there that you found as well. Tell me about those. Right. Well, undertaking a reevaluation it's a it's a complex decision. Um, there are certain conditions that must be reevaluated. There are certain exemptions to those situations, um, and you have to have some judgment about whether, as a result of all this, will anything change. Mm -hmm. um, and typically, uh, the folks that do this role are called um, uh, ratings um, uh, veteran service representatives. They are the ones who decide on a veteran's rating at the end of the day. They look at all the evidence and they, they make a fairly informed decision about whether this um, veteran is entitled to um, compensation for their disability. And typically they're the ones deciding whether the, the veteran should be reevaluated. Um, however, um, due to backlogs and um, other uh, resource constraints, v v VA gives the regional offices who do this function flexibility to give this role to less well-trained staff. Mm -hmm. Um, and those uh, less trained staff, the, uh, the inspector general found that um, they were ordering a lot of unnecessary reevaluations, which is inconveniencing veterans and wasting resources. And so the training part, um, uh, what we suggested is that VA needs to identify the knowledge, skills, and abilities that these staff need to be able to make these decisions and then align the training with that. And pretty much only give them to the right people. Uh, well, not necessarily. I think as long as staff um, have the right knowledge and training, yes. um, they can do the function. But right now, it wasn't clear that that was happening. We have about 30 seconds left, Elizabeth. You write, VA agreed with two of the five recommendations that you made, agreed in principle with the other three, but you write, its proposed actions do not fully address GAO's concerns. What are the concerns that you still have about those uh, addressing of those recommendations? Well, as I was just mentioning about the um, skills, uh, identifying the skills and the training, those were recommendations that they said they concurred in principle, but they said they basically weren't planning to do anything differently as a result. Mm. However, we think that um, given um, the results of the IG study that found so many problems, and also their own consistency studies have found that in the very f when they give um, uh, staff across regional offices a test, only 17% passed it the first time. And it took many tries for them to, to get to an acceptable rate after that. So we believe it's very important to identify those skills and align training with, with them. Elizabeth, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you. It's my pleasure. Up next, a new phase for one of the biggest contracting moves in years. Straight ahead on Government Matters, Mass Modification 2.0. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The General Services Administration is working on phase two 
of its schedule consolidation. Schedule holders can expect GSA to add a mass modification to contracts in the next few months. Eric Crucius is partner at Holland and Knight. Welcome back, my friend. Nice to see you. You too. What's this all about? Is this playing out the way that GSA said it would and the way that your clients, contractors expect it to? I think it is, and I think GSA has done a really good job of kind of communicating with industry about what, what's happening and when, and actually sticking with a schedule mm -hmm. on it, uh, which has been very helpful, I think, as people plan. A lot of contractors rely on their GSA schedules to do most of their business with the federal government, and it's really been, I think, refreshing to see how smoothly it's gone. Sticking with a schedule, I see what you did there. <laughs> That's very nice. Um, what, what is coming? What, is, what will GSA be telling people or what will they be writing into contracts in the coming weeks and months? So right now what's happening is um, you have the contracts getting the same terms and conditions and they're going by contract type. So like IT70 is going to be in a couple of days. They've already done some other ones. Um, and that's, that's the phase two process that is going on right now. And then mm -hmm. phase three is your contract will be one contract uh, with one contract number. Uh, by the end of the year, essentially. So that's kind of how it's going right now. I don't know if you're hearing what I'm hearing, but there is a little bit of heartburn in the contracting community about beta.sam.gov, and there are some people that are going, we're a little skeptical that GSA will be able to pull this off the way they say they're pulling this off. That's, I know it's a completely separate issue, yeah. completely separate team at GSA. I'm not sure that's fair, I'm just reporting what people are telling me, are you hearing similar things? I'm hearing similar things, and um, when they moved WDOL.gov to beta.sam.gov, there was a lot of consternation about it, and uh, I was one of those folks, mm -hmm. and I didn't really like it at first, and as I've used it more, I've become more used to it, and I've liked it a lot more, but the danger, of course, is you're piling on a lot of different functions on one website, mm -hmm. and especially websites that are so critical, like FedBizOps, mm -hmm. and uh, they just have to be very careful about how quickly they're rolling this out. What do you think people should look for during the schedule consolidation? What do they need to pay attention to? Unintended consequences or a step they don't want to miss that might mess something up badly or something like that, Eric? Well, one thing they have to make sure they have to do is they have to accept the new terms and conditions by July 2020, July this year, or else they will lose their, essentially lose their schedule contract. So that's the first thing. And what they need to do to do that is to review the terms and conditions of the new consolidated contract and see how they mesh with their old terms and conditions and see if there's anything they want to take exception to. Mm -hmm. And GSA recommends that if they're going to take exception to something, they should do it by April of this year. So uh, that's a process that contractors should be looking at right now. Is there a way to look at the TNC and say, yes, this bothers me, or no, this doesn't, yes, I want an, ex uh, an exception, no, I don't, or is it depend on the company and the type of contract and all of that kind of stuff? All that kind of stuff, but you need to raise it, raise it with your contracting officer if you think there is something that you want to take exception to. Um, but it's kind of going to be a case-by-case uh, -case basis, unfortunately. All right, I want to shift gears because we, you've been on the program a lot to talk about the cybersecurity mo uh, maturity model certification. I get that wrong almost every time. Um, <laughs> Everyone does. Final requirements up, what do you think of what you see? I th I'm, I'm very heartened. I think, um, I think DOD listened to industry. I mean, um, the accreditation board has come together mm -hmm. and uh, they're rolling right along and I think um, you know, DOD's done a great job of outreach. Um, and I think the accreditation board is, is doing the same. Um, they, they're trying to swallow a lot of things at the same time. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like the, uh, the new website as well, beta.sam.gov. There's a lot happening at one time. So, uh, you know, I, I'm hopeful. Uh, obviously, this is going to be uh, a change for contractors and an expense for contractors. And there's, there's still the worry that small businesses, you know, won't be able to afford 
a certification, although DOD says that they intend to make it affordable. How do you, would you like to see DOD do that? How, what, what does affordable look like without cutting corners just to get companies accredited that may or may not be qualified to be accredited? I mean, one, one possible solution is you have companies offering back-end solutions on cybersecurity, so mm -hmm. allowing those to, to play a role, um, I think will make things a lot less expensive. Um, and I just think a lot more outreach to small business and how that can work. I mean, DOD has said that this is an allowable cost, but to have an allowable cost, you have to have a contract. So, um, you know, th there's no easy answer mm -hmm. because cybersecurity is obviously really important, and as a community, we should take it very seriously. But on the other hand, we can't, we can't just toss all these small businesses aside who are just up and coming and may, can, may offer some unique things to the federal government. Especially when the point of just about everything the Pentagon's done over the last couple of years has been to bring new companies into the defense industrial base, it would seem kind of counterintuitive to eliminate a whole bunch of them all of a sudden. Absolutely. I mean, that DOD uh, stood up a special unit to bring in uh, non-traditional contractors. So this kind of is counter to that, but for a good reason. All right, about 30 seconds left. What will you watch as all of the CMMC stuff plays out, Eric? I'm going to really be interested to see if they stick to the schedule they've said that they're going to stick to, where RFIs by June, RFQs by September. Not all of them is going to be uh, rolling. They're going to identify the contracts. One thing I'm, I'm, uh, I'm interested to see is how these contracting officers will assign a level, a CMMC level, to each individual contract. That could be a basis for a, a pre-award protest um, if, if the level is too conservative or you know, if the agency wants a particular contract, contractor that might have a level four. Mm -hmm and um, even though it's level three kind of work. You know, so that kind of juxtaposition that, and, and that figuring that out on each contract by contract basis, I imagine there'll be some guidance that's issued on the different levels and, and what kind of information a contractor has to possess in order for that level to be assigned to a particular contract. So I'll be really looking at that closely. Eric Crucius, thanks very much as always, my friend. Thank you. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available as an audio podcast now. You can get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn, or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.